Hi, everybody. I'm Brent Stafford, and welcome to another edition of RegWatch on GFN.TV. We're here in Warsaw, Poland, for the Global Forum on Nicotine, the annual conference on safer nicotine products and tobacco harm reduction, celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. Joining us today is Samrat Chowdhury. Yep. Hi, Brent. Hi. It's good to see you again, finally in person, actually. Yep. Thanks for coming back on the show. You are a consumer activist. What does that mean? Well, uh, what it means is that I am uh, one of those long-term smokers who tried everything to quit uh, uh, to a point of really being frustrated and not even believing that you can quit. And then came along e-cigarettes uh, within a week without realizing, you know, with all that effort that went into other ways of quitting, I was off cigarettes. And that was like a eureka moment for me. And from then on, my health improved. I could, uh, you know, my, my taste buds were back. My 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 mom, because my dad was a long-term smoker, and then I was, uh, she, she was like, in 40 years, the house, for the first time, doesn't stink anymore. So, you know, it was not just me who uh, saw the immediate health benefit, but also people around me were happier. So, um, did you, was there any health problems in your family? No, not, no, yes, my father was a long-term smoker, uh, and then he quit, and after eight years is when he was diagnosed with lung cancer, and Every time we would take him to the doctor and the first thing they would say, oh, but he's a smoker, right? And I was like, no, he's quit eight years ago. Uh, well, then he, the doctors would say, but if I look at his vitals and his scans, I see a smoker because, you know, that's the damage that's been caused. So that was quite disastrous. I just didn't want to repeat the mistakes, you know, and, and learn from that and at least not that mistake. Uh, so I did really very seriously try to quit. But it's just not easy. You know, I, I went to... a, a medical specialist and I got some 17 medicines which would make me feel woozy and not being able to operate. It's, you know, it, it, it's not easy to quit. Uh, vaping really worked for me. And then I thought, okay, why shouldn't others also have that opportunity or at least the option? Uh, you know, whether it, it may or may not work for everyone, right? Uh, but people should have the option to try it and see if it does. And uh, for all the studies that were uh, being published and the scare stories, I have my own health, right? I mean, that's the relationship which I would really trust. If I can climb stairs suddenly, and, you know, which I couldn't earlier, and if I can go for 40 kilometers cycle rides, which I couldn't go earlier, that's meaningful difference. I know then it's working for me. Now, you're from India? Yes. And was it easy to find product in India at the time? Well, see, uh, so we were uh, small communities like Facebook groups or WhatsApp groups, and uh, these were like counseling centers. You know, these were like uh, consumers helping other consumers. Okay, so what do you smoke? How much do you smoke? What kind of a device you'd like? They were, you know, these were like cessation experts. These were helping people quit, and it was just like a community. Uh, so we would order from outside, from China, you know, Fast Tech, uh, uh, which I think closed shop last year, which is quite, uh, you know, iconic for us. I mean, and that's how trial and error, there was a steep learning curve. Now, of course, we have devices which are just, you know, pick and uh, use. But earlier, you had to uh, invest some effort. But it was still worth it because, you know, the health benefits uh, were tremendous. So when was this that you found vaping and you quit? Well, see, um, I first tried vaping, I think, around 2011 or 12. Personal devices were, like, really uh, very fragile and very expensive. So I would pick one up and then in three months it, will, it would conk off and I would like, okay, now I need to save some money and get another one. So it wasn't that easy. Uh, so I was on and off and it was, uh, I think it took me almost two years to completely stay off, get off cigarettes. Because I found a good device, sturdy one, which would like, you know, which could be long-term uh, solution. So uh, to that argument that most uh, vapors are also dual users, 
but that dual use also exists with guns and patches, right? Like, not, not, you know, so that it's a phase. And if you uh, try to uh, project that as a main characteristic, that's not true. Most people I know, or I work with, and our association works with, have had their own. Some people just gave up on the first day that they tried vaping, and some like me took a long time, but did finally. Uh, so what we tell you know smokers when they say, okay, I do feel like smoking, yes, but just continue vaping because you will see the benefit over time, and you will be replacing it more and more till the time that you don't need it anymore. So you were a dual user, bad. You're so bad. Tobacco yeah. control says that's yeah. the worst thing possible. Yeah. But there is a transition phase. You know, you cannot expect uh, to have, uh, a, you know, some sort of, uh, you can't decide how people quit. They will do it. As long as they're making that effort to wean away, however slowly, it should be encouraged. Rather than tell them that this dual use is more harmful, so you, you know, either quit vaping, and then there is that uh, other crazy school of thought, but at least we know what's in cigarettes, we don't know what's in vaping, you know? So all crazy kind of arguments are being uh, presented to dissuade uh, smokers from making the switch. Do you find the dual use argument that comes out of public health and tobacco control to be maybe a smidgen disingenuous? Uh, yeah, they are trying to pick on points. I think well, what I generally see is the lack of uh, desire or willingness to understand what vaping is, how it actually helps people. You know, because a lot of these arguments are from people who obviously have not experienced someone trying to quit and with vaping. Had they, they wouldn't be making the, you know, they would be happy that people are still on the journey to quit, rather than uh, scaring them off that journey, saying, okay, you should, you know, quit one or the other. It's not always easy for someone to quit smoking, because it's not just about the nicotine, it's also a lot of other things involved, the social circle you are in. For example, I was a journalist, everyone smoked. Uh, you know, I mean, we would, our, our best work would be in the smoking area. So that's the culture I'm in, you know, and then, then when I started vaping, and I, I, you know, I couldn't be in that smoking room, so I would go out somewhere and vape. I mean, you know, I, but those changes are incremental. You cannot expect me one day, and you cannot expect anyone to do that, and you should just be happy that they're trying. What makes a tobacco control person happy? I, I'm increasingly beginning to think uh, uh, it is the right or the, you know, the, the sort of decision-making power they have over other people. Because it could, it doesn't look like public health to me. Because if you're really looking at solutions, which is how we started in India, you know, when we formed the uh, association, uh, we said, okay, you know, India has a huge number of tobacco users. We have huge tobacco health burden. Uh, even uh, like a health, like if you calculate the health cost, it's like five times the revenue. Uh, we are a country, we don't have public health care, widely accessible one. So in a situation like that, health preve harm prevention would be really welcome. But <laughs> then there are wheels within wheels and the government is itself involved in the tobacco trade. And then you have the Bloombergs and the WHOs saying, okay, go for it, ban it. And you know, so uh, it, it was quite shocking when the ban came, when India did ban it. And that was in 2019? In 2019. Uh, this. Uh, so the, uh, like a quick chronology of events, uh, in the beginning of the year, Juul announced that it would officially launch in India. That sudden uh, motion, you know, a lot of things. Uh, a new health minister came in who actually has been a long-term WHO advisor who happened to get into politics. So he's actually a WHO man. He's quite indoctrinated in the whole prohibitionist, uh, you know, kind of a, 
I mean, if you can if you can ban it, let's ban it, and then the problem will go away. It'll obviously not go away. And now we have a bigger problem than when we started out, and we'll come to that. Uh, and then in 2019, they banned it first uh, through an ordinance, like uh, which didn't have to pass through parliament. And then three months later, it was brought to parliament, where uh, the health minister began uh, by saying that, okay, you have 500 people here. I invited you to look at e-cigarettes, and enough, you have even seen these products. Uh, so they <laughs> don't know, and you, you have to see some of the arguments being made. One uh, politician, a uh, well-known one, this has meth, this has crystals in it, you know, and weird kind of stuff. Uh, one, one, one came up with an argument that since it is good, it must be bad. You know, so that kind of uh, really uh, uh, ill-informed, uh, you know, uh, people were then asked to, uh, well, the way they were sold was WHO is saying it, so you know, uh, and in country developing nations, WHO carries a lot of weight. I think people don't give enough credit to the word control in tobacco control. I think that says it all. Yeah, I mean, that's what I, that's what I was saying right on. I think it, I, but how did we get here? You know, sometime I wonder how, I think because, you know, the smokers' rights were eroded and then everyone, I mean, the whole thing was sold as, okay, it's the secondary harm, so therefore you cannot, and then those rights kept becoming more draconian to a point where smokeless tobacco gets banned in non-smoking areas. I mean, what's the logic in that? Uh, and, and then uh, lack of respect for that individual who's using tobacco. You know, uh, now we are in a strange situation that we have more respect for people, uh, for drug users, but not for tobacco users, when more people die from tobacco use. And, you know, on one hand, we say, uh, you know, uh, the US Surgeon General, I think, uh, said it's more addictive than heroin or cocaine. Would you tell a cocaine or a heroin addict, just quit on your own? Or not, like, give them proper, you won't do that to that, but, you know, with tobacco users, you suddenly expect, or the policies are being framed in a way which assume that if you tax them more, then they will stop doing it. It is addiction, it is dependence. You cannot uh, come at it with, you know, things which will only make the problem worse. Because that person is going to buy something cheaper from, from the illegal market, which will cause more harm. So I don't see how you're helping. In your experience, do you think there could be maybe underlying this lack of respect, lack of dignity, um, and so forth that tobacco control exudes towards smokers? Could that be because they somehow can't separate the smoker from big tobacco? I think uh, they, you know, when FCTC was formed in 2003, uh, they did have, uh, you know, uh, big hopes that they would be able to tackle this issue, right? I think over the years, as the number of smokers never went down, you know, it's still over a billion, uh, they tried to, uh, I think, reason to themselves why they should exist when the problem that they are trying to deal for 20 years is just where it was, or worse, you know, perhaps. So. Uh, so then come these ancillary arguments of trying to justify why they're doing what they're doing, you know, and uh, nowhere. Uh, so we have like the, one of the most famous uh, or well-known tobacco control experts uh, in India uh, is on record saying things like, uh, but smokers anyway, only 5% of them quit. So let's just leave them aside. Let's just, you know, forget about them. Let's just focus on kids. Uh, that's uh, 270 million people he uh, wants us to just forget about. And these are tax-paying people. They pay tax on <laughs> the most tax on a product. And they are your people. So is that then the concept that, uh, uh, 
let's just breed the smokers out? Yeah, let's, why, why should let, they are, they are a lost generation, they are lost people. The moment you touch a cigarette, you are a tobacco uh, uh, industry shill or you are not someone that uh, should be considered. Uh, so now you are a population which we want to, you know, just throw into the sea if we could. Uh, and let's just focus on uh, kids not coming in. But one of the reasons I started smoking was because my dad was smoking. You know, I would pick up those stuffs. So uh, just, you know, just ignoring a billion people is also not, <laughs> I don't see how that is good strategy. But not once have I seen sympathy or at least empathy for smokers. These are the people you are, you've been mandated to protect the lives of by restricting options, you know, by, by you're, you're taxing them, you're pushing them into no smoking zones. I, I mean, I'm not against any of these measures. What I'm saying is that there has to be a more humane way to tackle the problem. It's not that we have not done it in drugs control, we have, and there has been great success. So we know it works, and it's just that tobacco control uh, needs to start thinking like drugs control, and, I, and I'm not sure why people from there are not uh, advising. The UNDP program you know, has the autonomy of the user at the center of its policy make. Drug users are regularly part of their COPs, or you know, uh, the meetings, but not in tobacco. When we last had you on the show in 2021, it was to talk about some of the activities of Mr. Bloomberg. Yes. And um, has that influence grown? And what's been the impact? Um, so the THR side, the tobacco harm reduction side, uh, the way the game is designed, we as consumers are delegitimized. Uh, Article 5.3 thrown at us. We cannot ex even go meet our officials, right? Like our representatives, we as consumers cannot meet because uh, I took, you know, I was a KC scholar and, you know, I, I did a scholarship where I was trying to figure out if uh, risk-reduced solutions can work for the BD and the Kenny, uh users, which are actually, uh, you know, the largest, I mean, cigarette use is just 10, 11% of the overall tobacco use. So if you're going to uh, solve or look at the problem, we have to look at those people. So my project was on that, but that makes me a tobacco shill because that money five uh, organizations back somehow is linked to tobacco. And uh, so, you know, they would use an argument like that to discredit us. Which forces, correct me if I'm wrong, really a lot of consumers who experience the issue that they're never at the table because consumers are never at the table. Yeah, and you know, uh, they, they say that uh, the tobacco industry has been creating these astroturf organizations, uh, and which is, I'm not denying that's not true. And for long, they have tried to, uh, you know, sort of uh, help a consumer movement grow, but who uh, would really defend trying to smoke and die from it? You know, I mean, I'm, there are consumer smoker groups and I have nothing against them. People have all the right to demand the rights they think are fair to them. Uh, but it still didn't have wider appeal. But now, there are people like me who know for sure that they have averted a certain part to death and want others to have that opportunity. So we are genuinely uh, fighting for human rights, right to better health, right to autonomy, right to make choices, safer choices. Uh, and, uh, but they have not adapted to that. So they, they, uh, the tobacco control does not understand a person like me why would they do that? You know, I mean, that rationale. So there was a paper published uh, uh, in Tobacco Control, and uh, it somehow uh, painted INCO, like the organization, which is an umbrella organization uh, representing about 30 national consumer groups, as the fulcrum of evil, as taking money from PMI. And we are all, you know, people from different walks of life. We, we have nothing, uh, no connections with 
the tobacco company having said that though uh, there is uh, we cannot get funding you know if we come up with a project let's say okay let's try uh, you know a pilot thr program let's say in a village we adopt one we would not be allowed to do that so we don't have access to funding uh, the government has uh, also issued sort of a directive that you cannot work with anyone from the foundation or accept that money then they have issued a dictate on banning research into uh, e-cigarettes and uh, you know if that wasn't all uh, they just last month issued a gag order on the media from publishing anything pro vape so that is just uh, it would not be okay in any other field so excuse me in india the mainstream media yeah. has been it's banned yeah. they cannot yeah so the way the argument has been framed is that uh, speaking in favor of e-cigarettes would be termed e-cigarette promotion which in the bill is a offense punishable by few years in prison so uh, and i we have spoken to lawyers about it how can a law a bill in itself contain a provision that you cannot criticize it this is a democracy you know people have the right to criticize any bill or any uh, uh, piece of legislation which they do not agree with here you are threatening media houses you are uh, uh, muzzling scientists and uh, of course consumers you know you think that anyway are you know in bed with the industry of course we can also access funding you know we cannot make representation so it just everything is stacked against us and i don't see how isn't it strange though because india is a large one of the world's largest suppliers of nicotine is that not correct that is true so while the who has uh, uh, somehow shifted focus from trying to save the lives of smokers to fighting the tobacco industry when they say tobacco industry they just mean the big four the bats and the gtis and the pmis and you know those those major multinationals they do not talk about the china uh, monopoly they do not talk about the india monopoly which actually are selling i mean china it, it sells the most cigarettes that any other company does those companies are somehow shielded under uh, this uh, excuse of sovereignty of the nation so the indian tobacco monopoly in which you know the government owns almost like a quarter or you know to that extent uh, it also controls tobacco cultivation it is the one which distributes seeds it this you know it controls which area is cultivated so it is in, it is uh, making the crop from the time that is you know sown to the time that it's sold so it is a direct stakeholder article 5.3 is being applied to a consumer you know who is just trying not to die from smoking but these companies are shielded and and who and fctc would never say a word about it i mean in fact the indian uh, health minister was given an award well yeah like i mean india is allowed to attend cop 10 yeah, right you're sharing that cop you know you're sharing that cop so how it doesn't uh, make sense to us that uh, you know if it is uh, if uh, if a tobacco company has state backing it somehow is not a problem what you have also done is then because of that shielding that you are providing these companies you have taken away the incentive to innovate because then they have a closed market and they would like to keep milking it without having to put in more effort into developing products because you know when you are going into a vaping or a, you know heated tobacco category then you become a technology company you have to invest you have to behave like one the ethos has to change and they don't want to do that and uh, and this is easy for them so it's on one hand you have the tobacco company interest and on the other hand you have the bloomberg people just making it easier and giving you all the reasons to do it considering that cop 10 is coming up later this year in panama 
the Conference of the Parties uh, for um, Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, if you had an opportunity to send a message to delegates there, what would that message be? Uh, to just keep one thing in mind that they are there to save a billion lives, right? You know, they're there to represent us. Do they really think uh, they have a genuine interest in uh, our interest in their heart? Are they trying to solve our problem or are they trying to solve something that they think is a problem? Uh, the, even the, you know, so I was telling you about the astroturf, uh, you know, accusation against tobacco companies. Even the tobacco control uh, consumer groups are astroturfs. <laughs> I didn't see any consumer in the Indian supposed cancer, uh, you know, survive, cigarette smoking survivors. It's just run by doctors. That's an astroturf. That's not true representation of what uh, a smoker would want. No smoker, even ones who have quit, would say ban vaping, you know, because they would like to have an option to at least try it. It may not work for them, but they should have that option to reduce risk. The only thing, Samrat, that I think that could be at the heart of this deep, deep, it's not even hypocrisy. There's something malevolent, I believe in the position. The only thing that I can believe is that it's rooted somehow in an anti-West, anti-capitalist kind of position. If PMI sold themselves tomorrow to China Tobacco, would there still be the same issue? Sure, right. You know, uh, I think uh, uh, tobacco has been a cash crop. Like it is something that has uh, really helped nations, like especially the developing ones. Uh, survive and grow and you know, uh, so it is uh, a crop of national importance. Uh, what uh, large countries like India, you know, even if, uh, you know, 1.3 point million people die in a country of 1.3 billion, you know, it's, it's good trade-off because they're making some 50,000, 50,000, like large sum of about 5 billion, uh, you know, which is again not, but for India it's quite a lot of money. So it's always been viewed uh, from a financial from economics viewpoint, right? So even the Indian ban on uh, vaping was announced by the finance minister, not the health minister. And, and then just as she announced it, the stock of all these tobacco companies went up because everyone understands the competition is gone. So uh, there is need to look at uh, the, you know, the lives of smokers, uh, have more appreciation for these premature deaths, how the kind of impact, because when I lost my father, I was 17, right? So. That's not an age that you should uh, lose your father. And you know, it does impact uh, the course of four lives. Uh, so, you know, and if there was appreciation of that, uh, perhaps it's also, uh, you know, that these kind of changes take time uh, to show results and governments are voted in for five years. So, you know, they're perhaps, you know, thinking short term and in that, this, these kind of decisions seem to make sense. But over the long term, you're going to help people. If you're going to bring down over mortality and morbidity, it helps everyone, it, it, you know, there's more productivity, people live longer, uh, you know, pay you more taxes, you know, and less healthcare bills. So, I, so there is, a, um, I think, a resignation that we could not do much about it. So let's just forget, let's just try to focus on other things. You know, like, I think the, the, the WHO focus is not on smokers. They, uh, you know, it's an unfortunate thing according to them, but they are intent on prevent. So that is why I think the whole teen, everything gets framed uh, in terms of a teen issue, you know, but uh, these are not, kids are not dying. It's the adults who are, you know, uh, 8 million of them are dying every year.